3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and this is Thursday the 22nd of April, and it's just gone uh, four past seven in the morning. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, Carly. Morning, Rosie. Morning, Priya. Uh, How are you both today? I'm feeling pretty good. Um, it was a nice ride in, so I'm feeling good this morning. Yeah, I we was cold. No, nah, we were talking about how nice it was. <laughs> you got to get some gloves, mate. You got to get some gloves. Also, I'm going to shout out to Malika, who's our new crew member, who's sitting here shadowing. You're going to hear a lot from her in the near future, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, we've got uh, a packed show as usual. Um, shall we uh, let listeners know what's up for today? Yeah, absolutely. So first up, we're going to hear from Julia Buck, who is a queer Takatapwe writer based in Nam. And Julia joins us to speak about the Disability Justice Network, which is a newly formed grassroots collective. And they've just created a national mutual aid fund to provide support to marginalised disabled people. And then I'm going to speak to Elle Gibbs, who's a disability advocate and an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues. And Elle's going to join us to discuss the delayed introduction to, of uh, independent assessments to the NDIS and what disability communities are actually calling for um, in the scheme, and as well, as well as that, the COVID-19 vaccine rollout for disabled folks. After that, um, I'm going to speak with Sam Guerra, who's a queer non-binary primary school teacher, and they join us to discuss the fight against New South Wales Wales One Nation MP Mark Latham's anti-trans education legislation amendment 2020 parental freedoms bill, which is currently before New South Wales Parliament, and um, hearings were held for that bill yesterday and the day before, so 20th and 21st of April. And then lastly, you're going to hear a conversation that I've had with Asha Wolf, who is a founder of Crypto Party and an Amnesty Australia Humanitarian Media Award recipient. Asha spearheaded the campaign against RoboDebt, which began in 2016 due to the federal government's plan to prevent fraud and recover debt from welfare recipients. They join us to speak about vanishing Centrelink debts and robo-planning logics of NDIS reforms. Yeah, it's going to be a packed show, and I'm really glad that we have taken some time in this show to really focus on the NDIS, but also connections between the NDIS and the sort of broader logics of technological control, surveillance, and those kinds of things that come up more often in discussions about RoboDebt, because these kinds of, I guess, tactics being used by the government to manage how people are managing their money and the limited money that they are actually even able to access um, sort of covers the whole of the remit of Services Australia Department of Social Services. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't agree more. (laughs) All right. So we might um, chuck on a little CSA, promote our favorite show, Diaspora Blues, and then we'll jump into the headlines. So here you are, too foreign for home. 
Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. And let's get into some headlines for the 22nd of April. The milkshake consent video, which aired earlier this week, has since been pulled from the federal government's sex education campaign. The video cost $3.8 million, half of the $7.8 million allocated to the government's Respect Matters campaign. On Tuesday 20 April, the federal government's Department of Education took down the milkshake video, citing community and stakeholder feedback. The New South Wales government will now pay Shenhua $100 million to withdraw their coal mine project on the Liverpool Plains. The deal will see Shenhua withdraw its mining lease application and consent for the mine. The government has said that no open-cut mining can now occur in the area. Shenhua confirmed the agreement in a statement and said the decision reflected shifting economic and social circumstances since the project began in 2008. And after 160 years, traditional burning practices have returned to Corrindirk Station. After the mission was closed in 1924, many Aboriginal people were forced off the property, which only returned to Wurundjeri ownership in 1998. Uncle Dave Wendon has been teaching Indigenous land management students how to practice controlled burns and promote the growth of native seeds. And lastly, uh, Derek Chavon was found guilty on all counts of murder of George Floyd um, earlier this week. Yeah, it's been it's been particularly heavy yesterday as well, and we just want to send out. Love and solidarity to the family of Makia Bryant, who um, was tragically shot and killed by a police officer in Columbus, Ohio, during um, the, I think, the handing down of that verdict mm-hmm. um, in that trial of uh, Derek Chauvin. Um, and yeah, just reminding people that this is just the beginning of the fight. Um, you know, you know, you know our politics. We. <laughs> We can't we can't rely on on the state to to fix itself in that way. Yeah, I think it will be interesting to see what happens um, on this continent, though, as well, because I know that we do really kind of follow an abolitionist praxis and politics at three CR Thursday morning breakfast. But it is interesting to note that there have been no convictions over any of the Aboriginal deaths in custody. Yeah, it's. I mean. I think I, I think I can speak for us all when, when I say that it's really, really important that while people are in, in Australia are keeping an eye on events in the States, um, to not lose sight of the fact that there are families across this country um, fighting for Aboriginal people who've died in custody. You know, um, the inquest, I think, for um, uh, justice for Wayne Fella Morrison begins, I think, next week again. Mm. Um, and so, you know, supporting... The families of people that are fighting here, fighting for justice, turning up when asked to, I think is is so important rather than um, relying on whatever legal procedures um, to get the job done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the, the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Julia Back is a queer Takatapwe writer from Borlu, so-called Perth, and is now based in Nam. Today, Julia joins us to speak about the Disability Justice Network. Welcome, Julia. Thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, the Disability Justice Network has recently launched, um, and yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about the network? Yeah, um, so... It's brand new. Um, we've had so far one kind of official meeting with um, a few of us, like a few, maybe like um, 15 or so people. And over the last week, more and more people have been joining, which is amazing. And it's becoming this really incredible collective of people with really diverse experiences. Um, and I love that. It's it seems just so powerful already. Um, and it kind of just, like, it, it came out of a, what we felt was an absence in so-called Australia um, of, a dis, of an organisation that's specifically focused on disability justice as opposed to disability rights. Um and we found that a lot of the resources that we were getting and a lot of the content about disability justice was coming out of Turtle Island. And so we kind of collectively were like almost waiting for a disability justice organisation to show up in so-called Australia. And then at some point, through like various conversations that a few of us had, we were like, why, why not us initiating this? Um, and that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so what are you hoping to achieve as a collective? What are some of the main issues that people are already raising? I guess like we haven't necessarily discussed specific aims or goals or, um, uh, you know, like very specific things that we want to achieve at this stage. And I would say more broadly, um, what we all have in common is this desire for justice for disabled people and in particularly multiply marginalised disabled people, which many people in the collective, if not most people in the collective are. And so I think Overall, what we're hoping to achieve is this sense of community and this sense of support and care that we can give and ask from each other um, and how, you know, we can support the wider community. And I guess a lot of us are coming from abolitionist frameworks, so we're also thinking about ways in which we can replace or, um, you know, substitute or act alongside various systems and 
you know, government or non-for-profit organisations and how we can support people who might not be able to access those or who might choose not to. So, um, you know, a big thing for us is mutual aid. Um, and another thing that we're thinking about is organising a disability justice training that we can uh, deliver to members of the community who might not be too familiar with disability justice and the history of it, um, in addition to maybe some organisations who could benefit from a more, um, you know, justice-focused understanding of uh, the, the needs and the rights of disabled people as opposed to, you know, a more reformist approach. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And um, back to the mutual aid, I know that the network has started a mutual aid fund. So can you Mm -hmm. talk a bit about what mutual aid means to the Disability Justice Network and also what you're currently fundraising for? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sure mutual aid as a concept means many different things to the different people in the collective. Um, But to me, I would say it's, you know, it's a process that's rooted in abolition and anti-authoritarianism and moving away from this individualistic culture to one where we're supporting each other and, uh, you know, relying on each other and asking for help from each other and giving help to each other as opposed to... um, relying on either, you know, government organisations or systems or, like, uh, healthcare uh, more broadly, you know, like hospitals and such. Um, oh, and I guess the other important thing to note is that um, mutual aid, you know, like, it's not charity and it's not based in kind of, like, this, this dynamic where, um, you know, one person is, giving and one person is taking and there's power there and uh, and there's like a, a power imbalance I think a lot of the time with with like the charity model of providing care um, and in contrast mutual aid is, is about us supporting each other on kind of a level playing ground and making sure people have what they need um, and you know people who are able to provide those things doing so and us all kind of moving away from, um, yeah, depending on systems and structures that don't seem to care about us or aren't necessarily designed for us or that, you know, people don't want to engage with for various reasons. Um, And the mutual aid fundraiser that we started initially, it was started to raise money for an Aboriginal person in the community who required um, very urgent medical care. And then we figured, why not just keep it going? Um, There was, you know, another uh, young person who we saw on Twitter was asking for money for, um, to afford their medication. And we were like, you know, this person also needs help. Let's give them some of this money too. And we've, now raised I think almost $5,000 in like five days and all of that money we can yeah it's so incredible Um, and yeah all of that money we can now 
distribute to various yeah mutual aid um, requests that people have, like people's people's GoFundMe's or um, you know people asking for money with various things on social media, um, and we have this yeah currently this like backlog of money that we can use to support our community and and that's basically it like it's just this this way that that we can show and demonstrate you know collective care within within the disabled community and and like um you know the wider community and um i do really like that it's also a national mutual aid fund um and yeah, listeners, if you want to go to GoFundMe, um, just type in Disability Justice Network Mutual Aid Fund. And yeah, the fundraiser is currently sitting at $4,925 and the aim is for 10000 So yeah, definitely chip in if you can. Um, and how can people keep up to date with the Disability Justice Network? Because we're brand new, we, um, we're still kind of working out you know, what we want our, I guess, like our guiding principles to be. Um, And with that, we're trying to figure out a way in which we can uh, represent ourselves online and engage in social media that is really intentional but also really sustainable for us. So I think it's going to... I think it's going to be um, probably in the next meeting that we discuss that, and then after that, I reckon we'll likely be on um, Instagram just because it's a pretty accessible network for a lot of people and um, posting updates through there and probably on Twitter as well. Um, But, yeah, for now, uh, we don't have a whole heap of social media and you'll likely find out about uh, new initiatives in the meantime just kind of through individual members of the collective sharing within their various networks and communities. Um, but definitely stay tuned because we will, we will make sure that it is um, something that can be easily accessed. We just need to, yeah, work out some of the kinks and, and figure out a way that we can do it that, um, that makes sense to us, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for now, listeners, definitely just go and check out that GoFundMe because I'm sure that the network will post updates um, on the GoFundMe fundraiser as well. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us this morning to speak about the Disability Justice Network. No worries at all. Thank you so much for having me. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is just coming up to 7.23 in the morning. And you just heard an interview with Julia Back, who's a queer Takatakui writer based in Narm. Julia joined us to speak about the Disability Justice Network, uh, which is a newly formed grassroots collective which have created a national mutual aid fund to provide support to marginalized disabled people. I also wanted to plug a fundraiser for the Futuna Youth Nursery. Um, if you check back to some of our older episodes on 3cr.org.au slash Thursday-breakfast and look up Futuna, you should be able to find some of our interviews with them. And basically, they're calling for all artists and creatives to donate their artworks to help raise funds for the Fortuna Youth Nursery. So to find out more information about this, you can find them on Instagram, and that's at F-U-T-U-N-A underscore youth underscore nursery on Instagram.
Awesome. Thanks for that, Priya. They're just doing such amazing work over there. And also want to give another plug for Warren of Kanak. So if you're not already following Warren of Kanak on social media, like Instagram, um, yeah, definitely follow them because land back projects are just so like incredible and integral to yeah. <laughs> I, and I think um, for people that want to find out more, you can listen back to our older uh, interviews with Arika Walu, and you can find Warren of Kanak at, at W-U-U-R-N of K-A-N-A-K on Instagram as well. And now we're going to head to a track. This one is a new one from Dallas Woods and Kian, Stranger. That bad man energy, brother get your facts right Cash rules everything around me, get your stacks right Knowledge reigns supreme, got my head around the cream If you ain't talking about the team, you an up, you'll be that type Don't get this spitting, no written, yeah I'm that nice You heard about the boogie man, I'm ill, yeah I'm that guy Propaganda, I'm black and white, I'm a pan If I ain't standing beside you, my brother, that I can stand your facts St. Patrick with the snakes, butter. Get to talking that talk, I'll make a snake hover. I give fake homies wings. You know it ain't over till they old lady sings. Sayonara, my butter, I'm bilingual. The rap race will taste something I don't buy into. Authentic. If I said it, then I meant it. Come to backlash, I meant it. If I said it, beginning and ended. Tucked your chain in my young homie training. Catch you by the train station, now they trading. Wish it was different, but youngins just never listen. Universally distracted, that's why they rest they listen. They see it in the pictures, they see it in their pigment. Gotta feel the piggyback, same time, fuck the pigs. To all the young brothers, wanna make a couple dollars. Got a couple cousins, tell you that it ain't what it is.
And that track there was Stranger by Dallas Woods featuring Kian. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. And up next, we're speaking with Elle Gibbs, who's a disability advocate and an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues. Elle's going to join us to discuss the delayed introduction of independent assessments to the NDIS and also what disability communities are actually calling for within and beyond the scheme. Good morning, Elle. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. So um, last week we spoke with June Raymer from the First People's Disability Network about the proposed changes to the NDIS, but since then the new Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, uh, Linda Reynolds, announced that she would be delaying the introduction of the independent assessments and she'll instead review the outcomes of the trial and also seek feedback from uh, participants and community. So there's been a lot of opposition to the introduction of those independent assessments to the NDIS um, from disability community and I was wondering if you could talk about that that fight, that opposition, um, how it was successful or how you see that and um, where where to go from here? Look, I think it's been really clear how people with disabilities think about the independent assessments. Um, There's been an enormous amount of community mobilisation and opposition. Uh, There were over 4,000 emails sent to the Minister um, in a very short space of time as soon as she became the new Minister. So I don't think she was in any doubt how disabled people and our families and community actually thought about the independent assessments. Um, uh, I think disability advocacy organisations have also been pretty focused in saying what you need to do is just stop, um, and that's always helpful in a campaign. But I think the best, the biggest, you know, component about why the minister. Uh, had to pause was the mobilisation of communities. So, um, you know, I think I've said it to a couple of people, you know, my friends, you know, colleagues, strangers, you know, my inboxes are full of incredibly distressed disabled people about this. And people have worked very, very hard to, you know, try and get politicians to pay attention to how upsetting these ideas are. So, Anyway, it's a pause for now, which is which is a good thing, um, and hopefully the minister will start to read some of the submissions to the Joint Standing Committee and all of the other kind of feedback that, that the government's been given about why this is such a terrible idea. Yeah, I think it is important as well just to acknowledge that even though it's not, yeah, they haven't scrapped the scheme yet, but... Um it's important to acknowledge that, yeah, that's, it's, it's actually people have voiced their concerns really, really loudly and um, it, there's been some amazing work by advocates as well. Um, I just wanted to talk about, so obviously the NDIS as a scheme in general is meant to shift funding from services to individuals and so disabled people can get the support they need but also live you know, a full life in the way they want to. Um, but obviously the scheme isn't far from perfect even in, in its current form. Could you just speak to what you see the scheme um, aiming to do or what... Um, disability communities might want the scheme to do and maybe how some what changes could actually get us there rather than what the government's you know calling for yeah look I think this has been a solution in search of a problem the independent assessments so um, there are significant concerns about you know the fairness of the NDIS and but they're not the concerns that the government's got so um, one of the problems that we've you know raised over and over again is that if you've got advocacy so either formal advocacy or informal advocacy like friends and family um, and you know have uh, you know more advantages as a disabled person you're more likely to get a better deal and that speaks to the complexity of the system um, you know the barriers to entry all of that kind of stuff and the and how difficult it can be to navigate the NDIS 
Um, and so, you know, disabled people and advocacy organisations have raised, you know, for a really long time um, that all of these things need to be fixed and have proposed, you know, a range of, of solutions to do that. Um, but, of course, that's been ignored in favour of, uh, you know, a process that would make it harder for people to get access. Um, look, I'm a strong supporter of funding sitting with disabled people because I think that the old model where funding sat with, you know, service providers... Uh, where they got to set the rules, they got to say who was eligible, they got to say what programs they, they and supports they provided, didn't work and was incredibly damaging to many, many disabled people, particularly for people with intellectual disability. So I'm a you know big fan of that, but I'm not entirely convinced, and I never have been, that throwing the whole thing open to a private marketplace is the way to actually get choice and control. So I think there is a... This is my personal opinion. I think there is a way of... Uh, having those kind of controls of funding sitting with disabled people, which is with the Victorian model for some disabled people before the NDIS, um, but services still sitting with the public sector and with the not-for-profit sector. So um, I'm a big advocate of taking profit out of care uh, because I think that that distorts very much um, the purpose of what people are actually doing by delivering um, care and support services. And that's across the board. So childcare, aged care, disability. Yeah, I think that's such a such a great point that you know, um, funding can still sit with the individual, but that doesn't mean that the providers have to be privatised. It's not like it's not a um, a foregone conclusion that that's the way that the system actually has to run. Yeah, exactly. And that seems similar in the UK. Councils have you know, well, previously councils delivered. You know, it was individualised funding um, and councils delivered some of the actual services before the, you know, huge amounts of cuts in the last six years to councils' budgets. But I think that's where a lot of people talk about, you know, the NDIS is privatisation, and that's not exactly correct. Um, and I think it's really important that when we're talking about a progressive critique of the NDIS, we don't lose sight of the enormous power and that it gives for people with disability to have some say over their lives. Um, and that's a, a kind of thing that non-disabled people never have to think about. Um, but for us, it's, it's a daily event to actually have enormous amounts of constraints and limits about what we're able to do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, um, I mean, ultimately, all the proposed legislative changes the government has been talking about are really aimed at cost-cutting, it seems. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about this, like, logic of cost-cutting. And I know there's the word sustainability has also come, come up in the context of the NDIS. Um, if you could sp speak about that in relation to the NDIS, but also maybe disability more broadly. Yeah, it's funny how, how disabled people always, you know, get questioned about how sustainable we are, whereas submarines, whoa, we're always sustainable. So um, I think it is a very, uh, it has a very long history to see disabled people as not having value. And to be honest, I think some of that is behind these kind of supports, um, kind of cuts and proposals, because, you know, we're not seen as, as you know, being worth... Uh, you know, investing in or having enough uh, supports. Um, you know, the NDIS was was brought in to fix an enormous, enormous under uh, you know underspending and um, you know a travesty where hundreds of thousands of people with disability didn't have any support at all. So it was brought in to fix that enormous inequity. Uh, and you know, sort of four or five years after the full scheme rollout, for them to be suddenly saying, oh. Perhaps it's not sustainable, but, you know, you could have as many tax concessions as you like with your superannuation mm. um, is, is really galling. 
But it's not the first time that the government's done this. So there was big fights in 2018 about the the funding for the NDIS, and that was about the overall package. And the government then proposed things like using cuts to JobSeeker and DSP to fund the NDIS. And again, the whole, not just the disability sector, but the wider community sector mobilised really strongly and we stopped that, you know, had to do that a couple of times, but that was stopped and the government then committed to fully fund the NDIS finally, but again, through massive community mobilisation. And I think it's really important that people are, you know, the NDIS isn't just for disabled people, it's for everyone, um, that it's a system that is there so that if, you know, you become disabled, you will have enough supports to be able to live your life. And that's the whole point of it, that um, it doesn't matter how you become disabled or where you become disabled, you're meant to be able to access support. Uh, and the idea that um, that would be cut and disabled people would, would be left once more begging to charity is just galling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to move uh, on to the COVID-19 Senate inquiry on Tuesday, where the Health Department Associate Secretary uh, Caroline Edwards revealed that just 6.5% of people living or working in disability regi- residential facilities have received their first vaccine dose. I was wondering if you could reflect on this as it may perhaps a broader problem with how disabled folks have been considered as part of the pandemic response. Mm. Oh, look, to be frank, I burst into tears when I you know, saw that, uh, you know, last year during COVID, we were left out of the original health plan. Then there was a huge fight for us to actually be considered. Um, The sector worked really hard uh, to talk to government about, you know, why we had to actually be considered. Um, So, like, I'm immunocompromised. Um, You know, I stayed inside for four months last year because of New South Wales. So um, we were lucky that it was only that short period of time. Um, And... You know, COVID is really scary for many disabled people, and yet we were just nowhere. Um, and I'm watching that being repeated all over again. So, people who live, people with disability who live in group homes, have been on lockdown, some of them, for over a year. And the fact that they're not a priority, uh, I just was, you know, it is absolutely appalling that, um, you know, people with disability have been left out so much. So, I'm in 1B, for example. And my GP clinic, I live in the country, uh, said to me, you know, when I went into chat about, can I have the AstraZeneca vaccine? And they went, no, you can't. Um, And so her suggestion was, you'll have to wait till the end of the year. But she said, we got 80 vaccines and we could do 5,000 tomorrow. Mm. So um, it's a, I just think that for all of us in 1A, 1B, all disabled people, we have always been forgotten during the pandemic. And it took enormous amounts of work for us to, you know, actually get a seat at the table, um, you know, last year to, uh, you know, basically harangue (laughs) the various ministers to um, take our concerns about COVID seriously. Um, You know, people trying to get PPE, uh, you know, people of the DSP not getting any of the extra supplements despite having increased expenses. Like, there was just a range of issues where we weren't considered... And to find that out in a parliamentary committee, I mean, I love a Senate committee, but um, to find it out in a Senate committee rather than for the, you know, I've been raising this stuff and advocacy orgs have been raising this with government for quite some time, like I think at least a couple of months saying, what's happening? Why have we not got the figures? 
and the government's kept saying, everything's totally fine. And mm. it was like, to find out this way, it was like, yeah, things are not fine, like really not fine. Yeah, so, and just so, I mean, yeah, to hear you again and again, this kind of work that has to be done by advocates and um, disabled folk themselves, like just listen, 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 and just the government continually kind of um, repeating the same pattern. I just wanted to ask about um, the Disability Royal Commission briefly. It's not a brief topic, but the chair, um, Ronald Sackville, has um, been supported in his call for a 17th month extension to the commission by People with Disability Australia. And I was just wondering um, if you could give listeners a bit of an update about where the uh, Royal Commission is up to and why this extension might be needed. Yeah, Look, I think, you know, COVID has been an enormous disruption for all of us, as we know, but I think particularly with the Disability Royal Commission. I mean, there are a couple of things that the Royal Commission had on their plates that were due to start at the beginning of last year, including much broader awareness raising about the Royal Commission and the work to reach people with disability in they call closed settings. It's a term I don't particularly like, but people who live in who are in prison, people who live in group homes, people who work in sheltered workshops, ADEs, um, and they haven't had an opportunity to do very much of that at all. Um, so I think, you know, the Royal Commission asked for a 17-month 17 month extension and that's been backed very much so by the disability advocacy sector, um, who have been writing to (laughs) the government, particularly the Attorney-General, and and then to the Acting Attorney-General since March. So it's been very disappointing that the government hasn't actually responded. Um, And, you know, it's sort of feeding into this wider picture of, of, you know, are you actually interested in people with disability and at all and are you listening to anything that we're saying so um, it's been really challenging to have this kind of multiple instances of not being included not being uh, listened to uh, all one after another so uh, it it does get quite upsetting and uh, you know it, it does make things very difficult and tiring so Um, I mean, the Royal Commission is kind of our once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really start to pick apart some of the reasons that so many of us experience violence and abuse and what what are the systemic, you know, intersectional reasons for that and what kind of things could we do to solve those problems. We're not going to get another chance like this for a long time, so we have to make sure that it has the best opportunity to do that, to hear from everyone and... Um, you know, to have enough public hearings, to do enough private sessions uh, and to, you know, actually get out there to as many people with disability as possible. So um, it's urgent that the government does this. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, yeah, across these issues that we've discussed, there's been a consistent problem we can see with people with disabilities being ignored or just, you know, not in the policy leadership role. So um, thank you for kind of talking us through all of that. I just wanted to ask you if people want to find out more or get involved um, in fighting the government's proposed changes to the NDIS or other um, demands, find out more about demands from disabled folk and advocacy organisations, what could they do and where should they look? Yeah, um, so the NDIS stuff, uh, follow Every Australian Counts. So on Facebook and Twitter in particular, um, they will have lots of joint calls to action uh, statements, updates from there. Um, we're funnelling everything around that campaign through Every Australian Counts. 
Um, there's lots of really fantastic disabled folk that you can follow uh, on Twitter. I'm at Blunt Shovels, and there's lots of people um, that you can follow through, um, you know, Disability Twitter. Uh, there's literally a hashtag that says Disability Twitter. Um, or follow things like Crip the Vote, uh, C-R-I-P the Vote, um, which is a, a kind of political disability hashtag. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of, of ways and means that people can uh, follow along. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Elle. Um, yeah, and sharing all of that. Um, it's really important and we really appreciate it on Thursday Breakfast. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Elle Gibbs, a disability advocate and an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues, joining us to discuss the delayed introduction of independent assessments to the NDIS um, and uh, what disability communities are actually calling for within the scheme and beyond. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and we are just coming up to 7.46 in the morning. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery, and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Free West Papua Free Free West Papua Free Before the genocide, a celebration of West Papuan culture, history and struggle. Launch party Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. And exhibitions of archival photos from West Papua, pre-Indonesian occupation, cultural activists, and contemporary art by West Papuan artists. Lobe Wangai, Jeffrey Jikwa, and other members of West Papuan community here in Melbourne. Traditional West Papuan food from Joyce Kitchen and music from the Sego and Jill Kogoya. Join us for the opening night for food, music, and dance at Basement Gallery, Collingwood Yards, 35 Johnston Street, Collingwood. Launch party Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. Or few exhibitions Sunday, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Collingwood Yards. Before the genocide, find us on Facebook. A 3CR supporter. Free West Papua Free. Free West Papua Free. Yeah, free West Papua Free. Oh, free West Papua Free. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. And now we're going to go to an interview with Sam Guerra, who is a queer non-binary primary school teacher. And they are joining us to discuss the fight against New South Wales One Nation MP Mark Latham's anti-trans education legislation amendment 2020 parental uh, freedoms bill, which is currently before the New South Wales Parliament. So, Sam, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. No worries. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. So, I mean, this is this is a heavy topic to talk about. Um, you know, we are very familiar with uh, trans lives and especially the lives of trans youth being used as a political football. Um, yes. But yeah, I really appreciate you making the time. So um, 
Just for a bit of context for listeners, New South Wales One Nation Party MP Mark Latham tabled the Education Legislation Amendment 2020 Parental Freedoms Bill um, last year, and it was referred for inquiry on the 5th of August. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about the bill, some of the key points and what it's trying to achieve, and also maybe a little bit about links between this and Latham's uh, proposed amendment to the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Act? Yes, certainly. Um, so some of the key points that I took out of this education legislation amendment bill um, is that it prohibits schools from teaching that trans and gender diverse people exist and should be treated with respect. It also prohibits school counsellors from affirming a trans or gender diverse student or providing them with any support or referrals. And then it puts teachers at risk of losing their job if they were to support any of these trans or gender diverse students. Um, and then tying it to the uh, Anti-Discrimination Act, I guess it's kind of just like an extent, extension of that, but kind of outside of the schooling community um, and kind of, yeah, discriminates against our rights within society and kind of takes us back to like the outdated ways where we've, like, you know, we've fought for this for so long and now Mark Latham's trying to send us backwards, I guess. Yeah, definitely, because I think this is, um, you know, these conversations have been going on for a while with uh, conservative lobbies um, pushing for, quote unquote, religious freedoms, which ends up, you know, falling more along the lines of the right to discriminate against uh, trans and gender diverse people. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Um, It's shocking. It's so it's yeah, it's really appalling, especially, you know, um, across across the trans and gender diverse community, but especially when it is targeting, you know, young people who are at that stage of, you know, questioning and, and trying to find oh, people that they trust. when they're so vulnerable as well, yeah, it's just cruel and unfair. Yeah, definitely. And, of course, this has been met with a strong backlash from the trans and gender diverse community and allies, including a petition uh, that you started and a protest this past Saturday, the 17th of April in the Sydney CBD. Um, so what are some of the community's main concerns and demands with respect to the proposed amendment? Um, so I guess really it just it's wrong and it's not fair to continue this discrimination and it's not really fair to ignore these people and that they exist and that teachers aren't allowed to support these students because of a right-wing bigot um it's just yeah if it creates if it was to pass in parliament then you know you never know what else would pass and what chain reaction it would create that would discriminate further against this trans and gender diverse community um yeah so it's it's just it's very wrong um, and I guess, yeah, the, it's a general fight against allowing these kind of laws to be passed and allowing these people to have a voice. Yeah, because it sort of, you know, sets this precedent that this is this is allowed and this is acceptable. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I was also wondering if, um, because you are a primary school teacher, um, if you could reflect on some of your own kind of concerns, you know, based on your own experiences in, in the teaching environment. Yes, certainly. Um, So, like, prime example, I had a student approach me uh, last term and they started talking about how this other student that they're friends with was being bullied and discriminated against because they identify as gender non-binary and that they were choosing to use a particular bathroom as opposed to another one and the students were, you know, bullying them for that choice. And I stood up for that student and said, well, this student has a choice 
don't bully them or disrespect them in any way. But like, if this law was to pass, that puts my job on the line if I was to defend that student. So, like, you know, as I mentioned in my speech that I attended on the rally on the weekend, I would not hesitate to put my job on the line to be able to support these kind of students because I, I just feel like it's a natural thing to do and it's in, I have no right but to. Um, and then, I guess, to have the law discriminate against that is just, it's it, yeah, as I said, very wrong and it's cruel. So... Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. Um, you 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 want to be able to to let students know that they're supported, and especially in your pastoral care um, role as a as a teacher. Exactly. Yes, and then to not to be able to to not be able to identify the way I identify because I also would be discriminated against in the schooling environment if this law was to be introduced. Yeah, it would just. It would ruin, like, I'm very passionate about this career path, and I, if a law like this was introduced, it would just completely ruin it for me. But, like, at the same time, I wouldn't stop fighting until it was, you know, voted out. But, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, so, you know, un- unfortunately, this, this has sort of progressed to the point of hearings, um, and hearings were held on the bill yesterday and the day before, so the 20th and 21st of April. Um, and as far as I understand from that, uh, there were some pretty uh, colorful characters speaking at the hearings, kind of skewed a bit towards some uh, right-wing supporters of the bill. So yep. could you give us like a bit of a broad overview of the the balance of people called to speak and, and some of the key issues raised? Yes, yeah, certainly. So uh, from what I've read up and observed, it's been a lot of uh, right-wing um, people who have spoken, um, who are very religious and conservative in that sense, and they're coming up with these terrible, uneducated arguments that just don't have any support. Um, so, yeah, and then fortunately, um, I saw on Monday one of the members of the organisation that organised the rally last weekend was confident enough to stand up and kind of let these people know that what they're saying and these arguments and these religious beliefs that they have are so wrong and outdated and it's not fair to discriminate against people like um, my friend April who is trans. Um, So it was good, but unfortunately they were escorted out But with Mark Latham leaving the room at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, pretty powerful to see uh, a protest uh, within the hearing room. Um, but and, and I'm hoping that at least they got some of that message across. And I know um, as well that, I mean, as, as far as I understand, there was only one uh, trans-identified person who did speak at the hearings, Teddy Cook. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So it's um, it, it seems to be that a, a lot of this sort of information that was discussed in the hearings is um, a lot of, I guess, hearsay and fear-mongering. Would that be yeah. accurate? Essentially, yeah I, believe, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, And I also know that some constitutional issues have been raised about the bill. So regarding the sort of inconsistency with the Federal Sex Discrimination Act. But even if this bill doesn't progress, putting trans lives up for debate is still a pretty major issue. So um, would you uh, comment on that? Yeah, um, honestly, I don't understand why the trans community needs to be continued to be exploited and discriminated against. You know, like it, it, it we're fighting this big movement where everybody, no matter how they choose to identify, should be treated equally and viewed equally. And I think we're kind of 
stepping in the right direction towards overcoming that. But then people like Mark Latham and all these right-wing bigots, they are still trying to fight to discriminate against them and try and, I guess, yeah, like try and continue to say that they don't exist and that they need to hide because they're not true and authentic people. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it, you know, even even if, I, I think we saw this around the, the same-sex marriage debate as well, even just putting it up for debate allowed a lot of people to come mm-hmm. out and say some pretty horrible things. Exactly, and the problem with New South Wales is that they had the lowest vote in terms of for the plebiscite. So it's a little concerning that laws such as this one that they're trying to pass is up for debate in New South Wales Parliament. Even though David Shoebridge, the Greens representative, assured me that it wouldn't pass, it's still a little concerning to me. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess uh, the last kind of main question I wanted to, to talk about is um, yep. some of the concerns around the nature of coverage of this in the media, because I know you wrote a, a junkie article about the petition as well, but it seems like a lot of the coverage that I've seen, um, apart from the coverage of the, the protest at the hearing, has really been across queer media. Yes, that's correct. Um, I've noticed that as well. And any other kind of articles I've found have been like no- local newspapers who are more left-wing, I guess, Um but you don't really see it in mainstream media, but then you kind of think about the people who operate and run mainstream media and then you kind of understand why. Yeah, and it's sort of, you know, it, it means that um, the amount of the effort and work that goes into organizing against these things doesn't really mm. get coverage, but then these things, you know, potentially potentially pass and um, and then, you know, we, we don't, he, the, the the general public doesn't really get to hear about it, which is which is quite concerning. Exactly. Yes. Uh, like I uh, took my took the initiative to email a few um, not email sorry message a few mainstream media outlets for the in the lead up to the protest on the weekend, and I was like, hey, I would really appreciate if you would share this event and this information, and I was just ignored and nothing was shared. So, you know, that kind of just shows their approach and where they're positioned with this issue. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, so finally, where can people find out a bit more, support this pushback, and including um, supporting the next demonstration? Because I know that there's another one coming up. Correct. Um, My recommendation would be to check out the Facebook group page, Community Action for Rights, Rainbow Rights. It's CAR, the abbreviation. Um, They're the ones who organized the last one and, who had me attend the last rally. So they're your best bet for information. Um, and then if you're looking for further information about the bill and what Mark Latham's trying to do, the other website I always go to is Equality Australia. Um, and then those who also sign my petition, I also constantly post updates of information and what people can do to be able to assist further with this issue. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Um, and uh, where can people find the petition? The petition's on change.org. Um, I guess if you search prevent the passing of the Education Legislation Amendment Bill in New South Wales, um, it's, yeah, it'll pop up there. Um, if yeah, The only other place that I am aware that it's accessible is just on my social media. So 
Okay, well, we will uh, pop a link to that in the show notes after this so um, people can head to our page and access the petition. Um, But Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and for fighting for this really important issue. No worries at all. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. And that was Sam Guerra, who's a queer non-binary primary school teacher, and they joined us to discuss the fight against New South Wales One Nation uh, MP Mark Latham's anti-trans education legislation amendment 2020 parental freedoms bill, which is currently before the New South Wales Parliament, and uh, hearings were held yesterday and the day before, so the 20th and 21st of April. And if you head to 3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast a little bit after this show is done, so a little after nine. 9 a.m. You should be able to access a link to the petition because I know this is New South Wales based, but people in Victoria, um, allies of the trans and gender diverse community, we really need you to to step up and start engaging, write letters, sign petitions, get active. We can't do this on our own. And now let's head to a track. This one is Role Models by Kobe D.
track there was Role Models by Kobe D. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Asha Wolfe is a founder of Crypto Party, an Amnesty Australia Humanitarian Media Award recipient, and Asha has spearheaded their campaign against robo-debt, which began in 2016 due to the federal government's plan to prevent fraud and recover debt from welfare recipients. Welcome, Asha, to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So firstly, for listeners who are unfamiliar, could you provide a little background on robo-debt and um, how it all started? Right. So back in 2010, uh, under Labor, um, there was a decision to expand a program of data matching. Um, But there was human oversight over that program. Um, In 2016, the coalition government um, decided to remove some of the human oversight and introduce algorithms um, whereby data was matched. Um, fortunately, some of those algorithms um, were <laughs> were not only faulty in the way that they, they tried to mash together data sets, uh, people uh, couldn't be contacted, couldn't um, uh, hadn't done their tax returns, all of those sort of things. They're very common and and are not exactly a huge uh, issue. Uh, the the system took as signs that people were defrauding the government and would immediately make demands of payment. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people paid that money to the government, um, back to the government, um, when they didn't owe it at all. Um, as a result, there was um, a, a three-year campaign by grassroots activists um, involving a group called Not My Debt, um, which was me and a number of other people, um, and a number of people online um, began to lobby groups like Victoria Legal Aid and um, ACOS and push for civil society to work with grassroots to um, have a legal precedent set, um, which... About two years ago, we got a precedent through Vic Legal Aid, um, which was essentially that robo-debt is um, unlawful, uh, and the government agreed it was unlawful. Um, they did not, however, agree to, to do anything further than just agree that in the, that case, that precedent, it was unlawful, um, which then meant that if people wanted... Um, payment um, in, to gain back the money that had essentially been stolen from them, um, they had two options. They could either um, put in an application for comp- compensation to the government because there is a, a compensation scheme um, that exists for all government departments um, where there's been administrative error, or they had to take it to the High Court and, and challenge the government. And so essentially at some point after years of you know, Labor had been involved to some degree and, and numbers of other political parties had too, so we'd had huge amounts of support from the Greens um, in fighting robo-debt. The ALP um, shortened, uh, decided to, I guess, bullhorn a class action through Gordon Legal, a law firm, um, which was very exciting for activists because we didn't have the funds to run that kind of campaign. Mm. And uh, at that point, we were looking for a precedent to be set, which is essentially uh, that there would be uh, payments made for 
repayment made of, of money stolen essentially from people and um, that there would be some sort of, of compensation. Uh, instead, Gordon Legal decided to settle um, and many of the participants felt that they'd been screwed over essentially. Um, they felt that they didn't get their day in court and that they hadn't got the outcome that they wanted and there was a whole set of conditions around the settlement um, that meant that people would only get a very small amount back on on the interest that um, on the amounts paid and um, yeah, so a number of people have put in complaints to the court over yeah. the decision to settle. Yeah. Um, and it's my understanding that a legal precedent hasn't actually yet been set in court about the automated debt collection. Is that correct? So, no, a, a, a precedent has been set. So, in Vic Legal Aid's case versus Commonwealth, um, Amorosi versus Commonwealth, the precedent was set, which is robo-debt is unlawful. That was the point at which the Labor Party decided to get on board because they thought they had a clear shot. Um, to get compensation in a class action. Um, the bigger issue is the government hasn't uh, admitted legal liability in, mm. in regards to um, any harm caused. Um, it's all good and well to say something's unlawful, but really what we need is for, for the damage to be repaired, and that hasn't happened yet. And... Um Earlier this week on Insiders, um, former government services minister Stuart Robert again mischaracterised robo-debt as a scheme which has been in place since the 1980s, um, despite its significantly changing character since 2016, with the government reversing onus of proof, removing human oversight and escalating operations. So what does this tell you about the current government's approach to social security recipients? sneaky and sly and it it's it's always telling a lie about the nature of the way in which power interacts with people in poverty um we know that robo debt in its current form occurred in 2016 we know that it was a decision made by the government we know that it was um that they knew that it was causing harm we knew they knew that um that it was throwing up faulty amounts and they still decided not to turn the system off. Um, essentially, what it says to us is that the government will screw you over and they don't give a shit. And um, the lesson that you should take from that is to to treat the government as, a, as the enemy because that's what they are. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, robo-debt has really resurfaced in the news in the last week um, because of some potential changes to NDIS and also this issue of vanishing debts. So I just want to turn to the vanishing debts first. Um, And that seemed to come up about a day or so ago where it seems that some people's debts have not been erased but temporarily taken out of the system. And the government hasn't provided any clarity on what this means and why it's happening. So can you tell us a little bit more about um, these vanishing debts and some key concerns around that? I mean, essentially what the government has created is a shadow system. Um, And we saw it with with the MyGov um, sorry, my health record, where things can be removed but never deleted. So um, in the background, there's always, you know, debt on hold or debt paused or debt um, 
struck through, but you can still see it, that is still sitting there in the background, even if it's not being actioned. Um, it's a threat looming over people for an entire lifetime. Um, I think the thing with, with, with government systems, particularly in Australia, is there is no data entropy. So data that's collected on you doesn't have a use-by date according to the Australian government. It's always there to be used against you. Um, the way in which systems of, of collections of data sets are used in Australia is adversarial. Um, you are always the enemy. Um, it's never used to like say, oh, we underpaid you for like family parenting payment or whatever. Like uh, that doesn't exist anymore. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no single parent payment. But yeah, for family tax benefit, um, you know, they never, they would never call you up and go, oops, you are actually entitled to this. And it bounced because that old bank account was closed. Um, it's always used to do something like, hey, you forgot to mention that you used to be partnered with this guy in 1993 and therefore we're reconciling your tax. Mm. Um, you know, I think the thing that's really scary is it's not just there's no entropy in data sets, there's also no entropy in relationships. So we see women who have left domestic violence situations having their um, Centrelink details um, still mashed together with ex-partners who have been violent and, you know, the partner will forget or not do their tax return and then the parent that's putting in family tax benefit um, applications, each, or sorry, is, is receiving family tax benefits, suddenly finds that they've got a robo-debt because somebody else who they're no longer partnered with, who they've had children with, has not done a tax return. Um, and so we can see that there's this tying of people to harm throughout their lives. You can't just... You can't, it's not easy to escape situations of damage um, because of the way in which data um, is is used in Australia. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am, and you're currently listening to a conversation that we had with Asha Wolf about robo-debt. Yeah, there's so many um, issues that people on welfare face that um, just really aren't brought to light, um, I guess, through mainstream media. And yeah, you raise a really good point because I think we know just how um, incapable the Australian government is, especially around supporting people who have um, survived intimate partner violence. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just want to turn to NDIS. And yeah, it's recently come to light that you know, some issues extending from debt collection will likely seep into the already fraught NDIS, with senior public servants um, who were associated with robo-debt now moving over into the NDIS Fraud and Compliance Division. Um, so, yeah, there's some concerns about um, how this will impact NDIS. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, so because there was no legal liability ever admitted in court, um, Yes, RoboDebt itself as a program was unlawful, but but who's responsible? Name the people. And the problem with not naming names is that no one is responsible, according to the line of government. Oh, somebody did it. You know, it was bad. (laughs) But but you actually need to pin somebody to the wall over systems like this, over over things like RoboDebt. And if you don't, they take it as a green light that it's okay to continue it. In fact, they take it as a light that, you know, this is something that um, that should be continued. And that's what we're seeing with bureaucrats who 
they just slid sideways. Um, there, and there's a number of them, um, you know, really high, high-arm-flying um, bureaucrats. And all of them are implementing programs that have characteristics similar to RoboDebt. Maybe not exactly the same, but they have aspects where you look at it and you go, okay, there are going to be serious ramifications for people and it has the same philosophical underpinning as RoboDebt at the end of the day because RoboDebt is essentially ideological. It's the idea that clawback money um, that nobody was ever entitled to a payment in the first place. And it's the idea that people aren't really citizens. You know, if, if you believe in community and you believe in, in, a, in a society that um, supports each other, mm. um, then everybody is entitled to, to these programs if they need them and if they're eligible. But the way that the coalition views these programs is nobody was ever entitled to a cent in the first place and we should treat everybody with suspicion. Mm. Um, you know, everybody's somebody that can just, you know, you can shave a bit more off. Um, and what that means is people end up not getting services they need. Um, I think another part that we really don't hear a lot about in the media because it's messy and it's hard for journalists who are part of the system or who haven't experienced the system to recognise is the responsibilities between the state and the federal government when it comes to NDIS. Um, we have a system where anything that's healthcare is supposed to be state, but you can have disabilities that move into the realm of healthcare issues and then it becomes a tussle over who's responsible. And there are people who have fallen between the gap mm. where something like physiotherapy or for um, prosthetics, where they end up in arguments um, between the state and the, and the NDIS over who should be paying for things. And really, the person who loses out isn't the bureaucrat who makes their life hell. It's always the individual who is least resourced to, um, to fight these issues. And I think that was one of the things we saw with NDIS, was that people were really atomised. Um, I think the one thing that RoboDebt really taught us as activists was that the most powerful thing that you can do is work with other people. Mm. Um, the government likes it when people are scared and separated and they feel that they've done something wrong individually. Um, but when you realise that you're all being victimised by the government, it's not, it's not about something that you've done wrong. You're, you're just a person trying to get by in the world. Um, it makes it a lot easier for people to come together and say, okay, we're going to push back against this and we're going to fight against this. And in fact, we're going to make this a political issue that becomes you know, the, one, one of the biggest class settlements that Australia has ever seen. And I think it, it has sunk into the national consciousness, um, this idea of you know, um, automated harm. Um, and people didn't really understand that. Four years ago, um, it took a huge change in narrative um, in the way that we talked about welfare. So we've gone from uh, talking about, you know, alleged doll bludges, you know, this really harmful narrative of, of people sitting there and doing nothing, which is bullshit. Uh, you mm, know, yeah. people on Centrelink work harder than anybody else. To the idea that the government is essentially killing welfare recipients. Um, with the way in which they're treated. They're making it impossible for them to live and eat and work and sleep um, and and to deal with the systems, that the systems are, are Kafkaesque farces. Um, 
Mm. I do believe that Rover Debt as a as a grassroots campaign changed that narrative, and it, it also helped uh, push into existence and the, the national forefront the idea of of the need for um, groups like AUW and Not My Debt, and um, it's been really great to see how powerful they've become over the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're right. Like, um, currently the news with NDIS is that the government has put on hold the um, the coming in of the independent assessments. And I think that has a lot to do with because people um, are working in solidarity with one another to make sure that um, these kind of uh, regimes and these policies aren't implemented because they will really disadvantage the people that um, need this support the most. And one of the reasons why the independent assessments were coming in was again because the government said that that was a measure for cost cutting. Um, and that's why they're also implementing a lot of these compliance regimes which have this similar robo-debt logic. Um, just lastly, I wanted to know if you could comment on the Data Availability and Transparency Bill uh, 2020, which is currently before the House of Representatives. Yeah, sure. It's essentially overturning 30 years of, of, of ways in which we engage with privacy rights in Australia. Um, <laughs> I, I fear that we'll wake up one morning and people won't understand how it's come about that data that they thought was private has ended up in the hands of, of loan sharks or electricity companies or banks um, and is affecting their credit scores. <laughs> the idea that that data itself is wholesale good is bullshit. Um, and Australia is really a blackwater when it comes to privacy rights and data rights. Um, and I actually think, to some degree, the Morrison government is selling itself as a data blackwater, um, you know, the sort of place that you can go to launder um, unpalatable ideas um, <laughs> that, you know, if you, if you can't get someone to do what you want, in, in one country, when it comes to data, you come to Australia. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's a fairly horrible situation. I think that people don't recognise yet what um, data sharing will actually mean for um, the, the boundaries and the goals that they set in their lives. One day you'll wake up and somebody will say that you can't buy a new phone because you were once robo-debted and they had flawless instant access to Centrelink records. I think part of the problem with these sort of uh, this sort of legislation that we're seeing, and we see it time and time again, um, is that they don't tell us all the details we need to know, and then we're expected to fight or push back or lobby for changes um, or retroactively gain access to changes to these sort of um, pieces of legislation after they've already been passed. Um, and I think it's exhausting. These are essentially community organisations like Electronic Frontiers Australia, um, well, the Australian Privacy Foundation, who are completely unfunded and 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 pushing back against these sort of things. Um, I also think that that we're prone to ignoring worst case um, issues, so we don't look at how it can be used to hurt people. We always focus on, you know, yay, it'll be used to, 
to make our lives like some robotic dream of utopia. Um, and it's always <laughs> what is it? Yeah, Fully automated luxury, luxury communism. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, look, I'm not a, a luddite. I, I love technology, but I think that part of being in a society where we are sharing a lot of information is that we should have rights when it comes to data, and when it, particularly when it comes to our own data. And I don't see the Australian government as uh, willing to protect or enshrine those rights into law in any way whatsoever. And so it's something that I'd really encourage people to get involved with, um, you know, join Electronic Frontiers Australia, um, join the Australian Unemployment Workers Union, um, you know, really join with other people that are actually out there doing the work because um, the government isn't going to do the 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 work to to ensure that human rights are enshrined in any piece of legislation. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, yeah, we see that when the same public servants and politicians um, move through these different social uh, service sectors, like from, you know, wealth, working in welfare and the robo-debt and then moving into the NDIS. Um, and just lastly, um, yeah, is there any other things that you would like listeners to know about the campaign against robo-debt? Yeah, it's not over. And, and that really bugs me. <laughs> like, I hate that. <laughs> I'm so tired of robo-debt um, after four years. But it, it's it's something we're going to have to keep fighting because people are still getting um, debts from Centrelink. Um, and really, we never really questioned how it comes about that billions and billions and billions of dollars have been um, assigned as debt against the most poverty-stricken people in this country. Um, that in itself is a failure of governance. Um, and until we start saying no one in poverty should be being issued debts by a government, we're, we're not even beginning to fight robo-debt. Um, all that we're doing is playing catch-up with harm. Yeah, I, I think robo-debt has kicked off ideas around how it's important to name names when it comes to the people that do harm. Um, and I really hope that in future we'll see people pin to a wall over these sort of programs, but that day isn't yet. And on that note, thank you so much, Asha, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you. And just then we heard a conversation that I had with Asha Wolf about robo-debt, vanishing Centrelink debts and robo-planning logics of NDIS reform. Yeah, and uh, packed day today as usual. Um, we are coming up to the end of time, but just a reminder, if you want to listen back to anything um, that we talked about today or any of our previous episodes, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast where we podcast the show every week. So we'll do a quick rundown of what we talked about today. Yeah, so first up, we spoke with Julia Back about the uh, Disability Justice Network. After that, Elle Gibbs joined us to discuss the delayed introduction of independent assessments to the NDIS, what disability communities are calling for, and the COVID-19 vaccine rollout for disabled folks. And after that, I spoke with Sam Guerra to talk about uh, the New South Wales One Nation MP Mark Latham's anti-trans education legislation amendment 2020 parental freedoms bill. And then lastly, we just heard a conversation with Asha Wolf about robo-debt, uh, the recent vanishing Centrelink debts that people are experiencing, and robo-planning logics of NDIS reform. 
So I think that's all we've got time for today. Just another reminder to head to the social media of Futuna Youth Nursery. That's at F-U-T-U-N-A youth uh, underscore youth underscore nursery on Instagram to check out how you can support their fundraiser. And also head to Wern of Canucks social media and petition. That is W-U-U-R-N of K-A-N-A-K. Um, but I think that's all we've got for today. We'll see you next week. See you then. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.